0: And uh, just sort of the who and the when and the what, everything like that. We see right away, Paul is identifying himself as the author of this book. This, again, is one of those prison epistles that we saw was the same as Ephesians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon. And so, Paul is writing this from jail. And he's writing to this church in Philippi. Now, we're not sure uh, specifically and fully you know, what jail Paul was in, because there were a few occasions that Paul was under house arrest, right? He's kind of like one of the, you know, on the top most wanted list, right? Most places he went to. And so he found himself oftentimes in trouble by the authorities. And so there was a period of time where he's uh, under house arrest in in Caesarea Maritima. And then from there was taken off to Rome where he spent another two years under house arrest there, chained to a Roman guard. So it's believed that Paul was writing this letter from Rome while he's there under Caesar Nero's uh, authority and, and is there under house arrest change. So we believe that the writing of this letter was most likely around AD 62. That's a very safe kind of date to put it at. Now, what's the occasion for writing this? The Kind of the what and the why is Paul writing this letter? to this church of Philippi. So it's important that we look at a bit of the background that Acts provides for us, Acts chapter 16. You can turn there if you want, but I'm just going to kind of summarize a little bit because it was there on Paul's second missionary journey that he found himself, again, moving through the region of Galatia as we had seen. And on the second missionary journey, Paul comes and he wants to go into Asia, but he's he's kind of not allowed to go in there. The Spirit's kind of restricting him from going in. And then he wants to go up, north to Bithynia, okay? And so he's hanging out there in in Troas, and he's there wanting to go to Bithynia. But again, Acts 16 tells us that the Spirit is restricting Paul from going there, all right? So there's times where God will make very clear what his will is to you. Oftentimes, he's just letting us kind of go and be the people that he wants us to be, and, and, and serving him bringing glory to him. But in this case, it's like, no, I don't want you to go there. So as Paul's in trust, he receives a vision one night from a Macedonian man. Macedonia is just across the Aegean Sea there. And this vision is like this man from Macedonia saying, Paul, come to us and, and come and help us here. And so Paul goes, well, that's got to be of the Lord, right? And so he goes off to Macedonia where he lands there in... Um, Neapolis, and then makes his way to Philippi, and he's traveling with Timothy and Silas as Timothy is there in the greeting of this letter. So he makes his way to, ends up in Philippi, all right? And typically, Paul would go, what was the first place that he'd usually go to when he visited a city? Anybody know? Yeah, the synagogue. But here, we don't see him going to the synagogue. In fact, he goes down to the riverside, it tells us. Riverside, good place to be, eh? All right. And he sees a, a girl there who's kind of praying. There's a group of people that began to devote themselves to pray. This businesswoman named Lydia is there. And they begin just to have a little bit of a encounter at the riverside to make a little song out of it. I'm going to lay down my heavy load down by the river. No, they didn't. make. Maybe they made that song. I don't know. It fits. But so Lydia's baptized. And so the work of the Lord's beginning to take effect now in, in Philippi. And and so this work begins to grow. But now as Paul's moving about, there's this young girl. Remember the story in Acts 16? This young girl begins to follow her along. And she's this, like, demon-possessed. She starts prophesying all these things, speaking out these things there. But she's saying kind of good things, that these are servants of the Most High God. It's Kind of like free publicity. It's like, not bad, right? Hey, all right. But Paul's putting up with it for a time, and then eventually he's like... Enough's enough, right? You can't you can't trust the work of the enemy. And so he rebukes this girl, he, he casts this demon out, and suddenly she's free, right? But now all the, the handlers with this girl, like they're thinking, You just put us out of business. I mean, we got a great thing going here, you know, one eight hundred psychic hotline, three ninety-nine a minute, like we're making a good fortune off of this girl. Now you're just taking this business away from us. So they report it to the magistrates, the the officials of the city, the governors, and they arrest Paul. And they put them in jail. So you remember the scene there? In Philippi, they end up in jail. Now, I think most of us in that situation, we'd be like, freaking out, crying a little bit. God, what happened? It's like, you sent me a vision and come to this place and now I'm in prison? This isn't cool. But that's not Paul's reaction. Might have been my reaction. But Paul's, what do they do? They begin to sing. They begin to worship the Lord. And at midnight, a great earthquake comes and it busts open the prison doors. And I remember the prison guard sitting there and he's thinking, oh my goodness. And he takes the sword, he's ready to kill himself because he's thinking, if these guys have escaped, it's going to be at the expense of my life. And he's ready to kill himself. And Paul says, oh no, don't put a harm, don't harm yourself, we're right here. We haven't gone anywhere. And they begin to share the gospel with this guy and he gets saved. This household gets saved. And so this church is beginning to get formed there in Philippi by these people that Paul is having these interactions with so wonderfully and so neatly here as God begins to orchestrate all these things here. So, again, the the magistrates aren't too happy with what's going on, and they're ready to bring Paul back and, and begin to beat him again as they had done formerly, but then Paul, he plays his Roman card, because Philippi is a Roman colony, all right? And so they're under Roman authority, and so Paul, being a Roman... A citizen is not supposed to be treated this way. He plays his Roman card and they kind of fear of that, so they they let him go. All right. They asked Paul and Silas to simply leave the city. But here's the deal a great work was established there through Paul's ministry, and this church began to be be started and established. And interestingly enough, Philippi, the church of Philippi is the first European church. How about that? Anybody got ancestors in from Europe? You know, well, Most likely it all began right there in Philippi as that gospel began to spread out into Europe through this church in Philippi. Very cool. Now, Philippi was very near and dear to Paul. When Paul wrote to the Philippians, it's a very warm letter. He never had to defend his apostleship as he had done with previous epistles. He wasn't under attack himself or having to deal with a lot of huge issues going on in the church at Philippi. So it's just a very loving kind of letter that he's writing there uh, to them as they had sent um, their pastor to come and minister to Paul there as he's in prison in Rome. And so they came and brought some funds to him. But here now, again, Paul's just writing in return to this church here. Not any big big concerns to write about except we'll see in, in chapter four a couple women were having a bit of a, a dispute. Never a good thing in the church. Not not the women, the, the dispute. Kind of clear up a little bit, but now what's interesting is again, like I said, Paul's writing this letter from a prison in Rome, chained 24 hours to a Roman guard, awaiting to make his appeal before Nero, the, the Caesar at the time. And yet, as we go through this epistle. We're going to find that this is a letter of joy. The very theme of this book of Philippians is that of joy. We're going to see that word joy used some five times. We're going to see the words rejoice being used about another nine times. It's in every chapter of this book. So as Paul emphasizes joy and rejoicing, we see that Paul's joy was never dependent upon circumstances or his own circumstances. It's an attitude that he has where he's, he's able to rejoice in what God has done for him. Let alone, he's sitting in prison. I mean, if any time that you're going to kind of bellyache and whine, that would be an opportune time to do so. And most people would give you a pass on it. Yeah, we get it, Paul. That's pretty tough. Paul goes, hey, guys, we've got reason to joy. In Jesus, we've got reason to rejoice. I think for Paul, he's living out in Nehemiah 8.10 that says that, Joy the Lord is my strength. So even from imprisonment, Paul's attitude was one of joy. and We're going to see it on every, in every chapter of this letter here. For the believer, it's important for us to realize that joy is more than just a, a feeling. It's more than something that comes about through your just environment, your circumstances, your experiences. It's about really a constant way of life that we have because of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. Many like to kind of compare joy and happiness. It's kind of like synonymous to them a lot of times. But happiness is very different than joy, at least biblically. Happiness becomes very dependent upon your experiences or your circumstances. If I were to go into a grocery store to pick up some groceries and I find out I'm like their millionth customer and I just received a $100 prize, I'm going to be pretty happy.
1: I'll be like, "Eh,
0: all right, I wasn't expecting this hundred bucks. That's great. But yet, while on my drive home, suddenly I see some, you know, red and blue flashes. In my, I get pulled over for speeding and I have to pay a two hundred dollar ticket. Suddenly, that happiness I was just experiencing has quickly turned to a lot of grief, and mourning. Right, and wondering how I'm going to explain that to my wife now. But it's it, the happiness is gone. But you see, joy goes beyond just your present situation your experiences and circumstances. Joy is about something that is lasting, about something that's concrete, because it's based on Jesus and what he's done for you. And as we've seen, as we've been going Sundays Sunday First 1 Peter, is the fact is that he saved us, right? We have an inheritance that's reserved in heaven for you, and God is reserving us for that. We have something to look forward to, that we know that whatever goes on in this world and in this life, that's not the end of it. Our joy is beyond all of those things. It's found in Jesus. And so we're going to see as we go through this letter that Paul is going to be looking at some real keys now for us to be walking in this joy always. So here's a bit of the outline that we're going to look at here. It's going to center on this theme of joy. Chapter 1, we're going to see the secret of joy in spite of circumstances is the single mind. Chapter 2, the secret of joy in spite of people is the submissive mind. Chapter 3, the secret of joy in spite of things is the spiritual mind. And then in chapter 4, the secret of joy in spite of worry is the secure mind. You see, these are all things that can potentially be joy robbers. Your circumstances could very potentially rob you of your joy. Hey, guess what? People. (laughs) People can be joy robbers. Amen? Anybody? All right. Nobody. We're not talking about in this room. Nope, not none of you guys. But we know that we've experienced, you know, people that can really tend to suck the joy out of you. Things. If our focus, our preoccupations upon things, can really rob us of joy, and then certainly worry. So we're going to look at these things here as we go through each of these chapters. Now, notice how Paul is cooked to pray for these people in Philippi, and to pray. With joy Look at verse 3 I thank my God Upon every remembrance of you Always in every prayer of mine Making request for you all With what? Joy Making request for you all with joy For your fellowship in the gospel From the first day until now Being confident of this very thing That he who has begun a good work in you Will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ You know Paul could have had a very different attitude about this whole thing, right? Remember, he didn't have plans to go to Philippi. He's like, I want to get up to Bithynia, somewhere in Asia there. But then you receive that vision from a man. He responds, and as far as he knew, or as far as we know, he never met that man exactly. Rather, he gets beaten, thrown into prison. His feelings about these people in the city could have been a little bit jaded. I never wanted to go there in the first place. I was hoodwinked into going by this vision. I don't know if that was God or just the pizza I ate the night before. Where is that coming from? I don't know. He could have been very jaded about his experiences there. But yet, he writes now with just joy for them. Paul has seen the good things that came out of his time there, and he's rejoicing in it. Here's the reality is that people got saved. A church was established, and he knows that what was started, God is going to be faithful to complete it and finish it. Verse 6 that he has begun, to, or started, begun a good work in you, he's going to be faithful to complete it. He's going to finish it. I, Paul, knows, Paul knows that something good began. And whether he's there or not, God's going to be faithful to continue it on. And that would also be good encouragement for Paul as he writes this. Because again, he's writing from prison. He didn't have to think that God was abandoning him. He didn't have to think, well, Lord, uh, have I done something to offend you? Like, what, what is it? This prison treatment all the time. Kind of done with it. No, he's able to be encouraged himself by saying, God, I know that what you've begun, you're going to be faithful to complete it. Regardless of what I go through or encounter, from prison or no prison, it didn't matter. Paul would see and be sure that God would be faithful to finish the work in him. And notice this singleness of mind that Paul has is, is the key here for having that joy in spite of circumstances, is this singleness of mind. Look at it in verse 12. Paul says this, but I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happen to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. This is so incredible, Paul's attitude in this, because he's saying, hey guys, Even though I'm in prison, it's been for the furtherance of the gospel. Even though Paul was chained up 24 7 to a Roman guard, he saw that this was actually furthering the gospel. Paul's life, his very focus, his devotion was in preaching Christ, making Jesus known. And as long as the gospel was going out, Paul was quite happy, filled with joy over that. Do you see that singleness of mind? Paul didn't fret over his predicament he rejoiced because God's work was being done the gospel was advancing in spite of him being in prison wherever he was there was God's work flowing out of it and God was bringing the people to him he had a cap think about this he's got a captive audience now he's not having to go out on the street and try to find somebody to share the gospel with. God's like hey Paul just hang out i'm going to bring people to you roman guards and guess what I'm going to chain them to you. They've got nowhere to go. Even if they're offended by the gospel, they can't go anywhere. You've got a captive audience, Paul. It doesn't get any easier than that. Paul's like, wow, thank you, God. This is great. New guard comes in. Hey, do you know about Jesus? Guard's probably, oh boy, here we go. How much time you got? Oh yeah, you're not going anywhere. You're chained to me. Okay. And so Paul says, man, Sharon, sure and people are getting saved. Roman guards are getting saved. Because, as he says in verse 13, it's become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. The word was going out right up to the very high authorities there in the palace. Uh, It's so awesome. So, Paul could reason that this was the work of God, and he was quite okay with that. I'm good with this, he says. It's been for the furtherance of the gospel. Paul didn't have to go, Lord, but why am I, why do I have to do it from prison? Or why does this have to happen to me? No, Paul's singleness of mind is, is God's work being done? Am I being used for his purposes and his glory? Because that's what Paul was about. So if that can happen in prison, Paul's able to rejoice. He's able to joy. Oh man, God's work is being done. And even when people were preaching with wrong motives or selfish ambition, as many people were now with Paul out of the way, people are trying to step in now and, and take over kind of Paul's role in a sense. And they were doing things from selfish ambition. Look at verse 18. Um, or sorry, go to verse 16. The former preached Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love knowing that I'm anointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and in this, I rejoice. Yes, and I'll rejoice. Paul's going, there's people that are doing things with ulterior motives. They're doing some of these things to kind of hurt me. But guess what? The gospel's going out. Whether they're doing it in pretense or in truth, God's work is getting done. And in that, he says, I rejoice. That's a singleness of mind. He's not saying, hey guys, you got to, church, you got to go stop those people. We got we to make sure they don't go for this. guy." I don't think they're really doing this with the right heart. Paul's like, hey, if they're preaching the gospel, what's it going to hurt? People are getting saved. That's Paul's singleness of mind here. And his singleness of mind is also seen in his attitude regarding life or death. Look at verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor, yet what I shall choose I cannot tell, for I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. So Paul kind of finds himself in a bit of a pickle, right? He's like thinking, ah, if I were to live And keep on If I'm freed from this prison Well it's great Because my life is about Christ I'm going to keep doing it But guess what If I die It's actually going to be better How is death going to be better? Because then he's going to be with Christ Face to face He's going to be living in the glory of God Unencumbered by sin Or the flesh He's going to be set free. Paul's like, man, to die is actually going to be better. There's going to be gain in that. But he goes, man, I'm, I, I'm kind of torn between the two, right? Uh, 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 he's like conflicted over these things. I'm hard pressed between the two. He finds himself between a rock and a hard place. More so between, <laughs> between the rock and a hard place. Because he's like going, Lord, I know it's about you. And so if I live, I'm living for you. So that's going to be good. And there's going to be fruit from my labor. There's people that are going to need to hear the gospel still. So there's going to be good of that. But if I die, it's okay. Because then I'll be with you. I'll be delivered, set free altogether. You know, there's people today that live with such worry about death. Christians I'm talking about. Christians that have have that kind of double mind where they're so invested in the things of this world or relationships that their hard press is, I don't know if I'm ready for eternity yet. I don't want to give this up. And they're double-minded in the sense that they got such a, a hold on the things of this world and death is something that they kind of feel, I'm not ready for or I don't want right now. But Paul says, oh... I see value on both sides, but I'm ready for whatever God has for me. He's living for the Lord, sold out 100%. If he dies, gain. If he keeps living, God's going to do a work through it. This is Paul's singleness of mind here. So it didn't matter ultimately what happened to him because it was all about Christ. So regardless of what was going on, he was a man that operated in joy. Do you see that? Well, chapter 2 continues on. Now to look at the secret of joy in spite of people. And to do so, that's having the submissive mind. You know, it's kind of a double-edged sword because people can be those that bring great joy to you. I know we've all got people in our lives that manages a joy to be around. And then, like I said, other people that can kind of suck the joy out of you. But the problem isn't always them, as much as we like to think it is. People are people. And we need to recognize how we can respond and behave properly when others may not be. So Paul writes some very wise words for us here to take to heart. He says in chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection of mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out, not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Now, when Paul says, if there's any consolation in Christ, he's not meaning like, oh, you know, we're waiting and seeing. If if by chance there's some con-. No, he's saying, since there's consolation, that word consolation is that word encouragement ultimately. Since there is encouragement in Christ and going on, since there is comfort of his love and since there's this fellowship of the Spirit and since there's this affection and mercy that we receive from the Lord, Paul's saying, let us be those that will exhibit that to others. Be like-minded, having that same love and being of one accord and of one mind. And in order for us to see that being lived out, to be played out, we need to be sure that we're not being selfishly driven or perhaps thinking too highly of ourselves. Let's face it. We all love ourselves, right? We have no problem thinking about how we're going to put ourselves first, what we can do to make things comfortable for us. We love ourselves. We don't have a hard time with that. We have a hard time with putting ourselves second or last. But Paul is letting us in on a very important, revolutionary, epic truth. And it's nothing new because it's been passed down from Jesus. But the thing is, it it goes against every part of our human nature. Paul is telling us here, if you want to walk in joy, don't live for yourself. If you want to walk in joy, stop Living for yourself. This is where Paul is taking us here. It's what we saw with Jesus. Remember James and John came to Jesus in Mark 10. And Jesus, when you enter in your glory, when you come in your kingdom, grant us. Remember, they had the goal to say, we want you to do for us what we will ask you. We want to sit on your left hand and on your right hand when you enter in your glory, in your kingdom. And Jesus Jesus is like, are you sure? You guys know what you're asking for. Are you ready to take the cup, right, that I'm going to partake of? Jesus went on to share with them something very profound in that day and still profound in our day. Because he says in Mark 10, verse 43 to 44, Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all for anybody to think of themselves as a slave in that day was such a ludicrous thought. Talking nonsense. That's crazy talk. Be a slave? No, 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 That's, that's beneath me. I'm not a slave. Jesus shared something with them that just would have rattled them to their core in that day, and, and still does to this day. But Jesus is sharing something very important, this new concept. Others. Others first. You're not to look to yourself, you're to look to others. If you want to be numero uno, Jesus says, then be the servant of all. Live for others. Let nothing, Paul says here, let nothing be done through selfish ambition. In other words, where it's about you, where it's for you, where it's your desires above others. Live for others. See, in Christ, the way up is down. And the way down is up. You're never more like Satan than when you're selfish. And you're never more like Jesus than when you're a servant. And it's the two sides that we can wrestle with often. Because it's such a prominent tendency in our fleshly nature. Selfishness. That's kind of what's at the root of all sin. the self. And so it's so prominent in our fleshly nature and we wrestle with these two sides. Am I going to be selfish or am I going to be a servant? Remember, you're never more like Satan than when you're selfish, but you're never more like Jesus than when you're a servant. So don't get caught up in conceited thinking of how great you are. I used to really wrestle with being conceited, but I've, I've overcome that, and I am really actually don't have any more struggles with anything. I'm quite perfect now. but It um, used to be a real vice for me, but no. It, look, look at what Charles Spurgeon says here. It says, if any man thinks ill of you, do not be angry with him, for you are worse than he thinks you to be. (laughs) And that's the right attitude to have, isn't it? That's the right attitude to go, man, I'm, I'm nobody. I'm nothing special. I'm a sinner saved by grace. Why would I think of myself any more highly than I ought? Why would I not put other people first? We don't put other people first because we oftentimes think we're better oh, I deserve that more than they do, or they don't deserve that. No, I'm better than them. Man, how we need to take a low view of ourself, but a high view of Christ and simply say, Jesus, it's all about you. I'm nothing without you. And I want to demonstrate that love and grace to others as well. It's that great acronym for joy. J-O-Y, Jesus Others, and then you. And that's the avenue you're going to have for joy. Is when you put Jesus first, you put others above yourself, and just, I mean, scratch the why. Don't even think about yourself. Just take you out of the way. Just more Joe, maybe. Joe, just Joe. (laughs) Jesus and others. (laughs) Make the why something else. I don't know. Okay, so, here's the amazing thing. Is Jesus came and demonstrated that lifestyle of being a servant, didn't he? He didn't just simply say, do what I'm telling you to do. He said, follow me. Follow me because he was living that lifestyle as a servant. He says, follow me because I'm going to demonstrate what this life looks like when you put others first. And so, Paul gives us a wonderful example of what Christ's humility and servanthood looks like. So he says in in verse 5. Let this mind be in you. Which is also in Christ Jesus. Who being in the form of God. Did not consider robbery. To be equal with God. But took the form of. Or made himself of no reputation. Taking the form of a bond servant. And coming in the likeness of man. And being found in appearance. As a man he humbled himself. And became obedient. To the point of death. Even the death. Of the cross. Think about that. Therefore, what happens? Well, God has highly exalted him. And given him the name above every name. That the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Of those in heaven and those on earth and of those under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul says, let this mind be in you. Which is also in Christ Jesus. He doesn't say, develop this mind, or, you know, work at it, just let it be. It's something that we choose to do. It's something that those who are in Christ are already capable of as we're born again and given a new nature. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 16, for who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. So Paul says, let that mind be in you. You don't have to work for it, strive after it, choose to take that mind of Christ who came as fully God, yet he laid down the prerogatives of the Godhead. He gave up his deity, that he came as kind of just a man, that he was limited. Jesus was never limited in his power when he was here on earth. He was fully God, but what he did is he kind of veiled that deity in his humanity. And he operated as, as one of us. He was still able to do miracles, still able to you know walk on water, multiply food. He still had these things, but he kind of put the rights to these things for the most part aside. Right? He laid them aside. Otherwise, when the soldiers came to arrest him in the garden, he would have just like, you know, Right? I mean, done a Darth Vader, just kind of held the guy up by his, you know, and he didn't do it. He, he laid those rights aside. He made himself of no reputation. That idea there is, is in the Greek, it's the, it's the word kino, which means he emptied himself. And that's why this passage is called the kenosis passage. It's this passage where it speaks of Jesus emptying himself of the rights of the Godhead, to where he would come as a servant. It's amazing. That's why it says, who being in the very form of God did not consider Robert to be equal to God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bond servant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in the appearance of a man. It says he humbled himself to the point of death, even the death of the cross. He humbled himself, not just to death, but to the most shameful, shameful form of death, being put on a cross for all to see, a public spectacle for all to see, to be laughed at, mocked, scorned. Jesus became obedient, Not just to death, but to the death of the cross. He did that for you and for me. He humbled himself completely. He said, God, Father, let's maybe choose another form of death that's a little less humiliating. But he humbled himself completely. But it's in that humiliation then that God was able to exalt him highly. Above Everything. Jesus demonstrated for us what this life was to look like. It's one of submission. And you might wonder, well, how how far do I need to go? You you see, we all seem to draw the line somewhere where we think we're justified, maybe in taking a stand and saying, I'm not going to let you treat me like this. I'm not going to be a doormat for you. I've got boundaries. And we sometimes justify The point where you say, I'm no longer going to be submissive. That's just too far. Right? But Jesus demonstrated the ultimate submission in going all the way to the cross. And his humiliation led to that exultation, as I said. And that's what the word of God reminds us of. James 4.10 says, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. 1 Peter 5, 6, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you in due time. I don't know if there's ever too far that you could go in submission. Yeah, we like to draw the line, don't we? Like to say, well, I'll submit to this point, but when it starts really, you know, getting bothersome or intrusive or I feel like I'm really being walked on, uh, enough's enough. The Bible says, man, humble yourselves. And he will lift you up. He will take care of you. He will deal with the the wrongs and make them right. Trust the Lord in those things. Jesus went all out. And yet, it was in that humiliation and submission that God ultimately exalted him to the highest place. Well, chapter 3, we look at the secret of joy in spite of things is the spiritual mind. So as we move into chapter 3, Paul had to take a bit of a sidetrack here now to warn the Philippian church of potential danger. Look at verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For, For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. Sounds like a... Horror flick or something, does not it? For we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. And you might read this and wonder, what what is Paul talking about here? Sounds a little bit odd. But again, Paul was having to deal with false teachers coming into the church, trying to bring people back under this legalistic thinking and bringing Christians back under the law, saying, you need to apply the law. You know, live by these things. This is how you're going to be made righteous, These were the Judaizers that Paul had to contend with in Galatia and in the book of Galatians, right? So Paul's dealt with these people before. And they would come in and say, you know, if you're not circumcised, you're not really a true child of God. That's why Paul says, beware the mutilation. That's what he's talking about here. People are having to circumcise you needlessly. They were unnecessarily bringing pain and discomfort to people. And that's exactly what... When we live a legalistic life, when we live a life by rules, that's what's going to happen. It's going to be very uncomfortable, very messy. It's not going to be pleasant at all. It's not the way that God intends it to be. So Paul clarifies that those who worship God in the spirit and put no confidence in the, in the flesh, or in the flesh He means for salvation, they're the true circumcision. They're the ones that are truly children of God. Because circumcision was always to be an outward picture of that inward work. It was about seeing the heart of flesh being cut away and given a new heart that followed God. Now, if anyone had reason to put confidence in the flesh and in the the works of the law, Paul would be the guy. I could say, hey, you want to put up that standard of righteousness being based on the law? Well, let me show you what I could do. Because if anybody could put confidence in the flesh, I'd probably be the guy. I'd be the guy to do it. But, but notice where Paul takes us here next. Because Paul begins to lay down his pedigree, his background, his accomplishments to show these guys that it was of little value next to Christ. Look at what we read in verse 4. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin a Hebrew of the Hebrews concerning the law a Pharisee concerning zeal persecuting the church concerning the righteousness which is in the law blameless but notice this as Paul lays out all these things that he's been perfect and blameless according to the law even though he knew he wasn't completed but he could hold his life up against the law and go man checklist checklist yep done it been okay all's good But then he says this in verse 7. But what things were gained to me, these I've counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Verse 10 that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. So if you were to measure a person by their accomplishments according to the flesh, probably be able to run circles around anyone. Like, look at me. I mean, I've I've done it. I've achieved it. And yet, look at what he says. All these things that were once a gain to him He counts them now as what? As a loss in comparison to Christ. In fact, he would trade on whatever he could achieve in himself just for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ. Just for the beauty of knowing Jesus. Counts all these things. He had been living for previously as rubbish or, or garbage. More specifically, he's that terminology of a pile of dung is what he's talking about everything that I've been living for and working after and achieving all the accolades I have, it's like a pile of dung next to simply knowing Christ. Think about that. Is that how you look at some of your valuables? I think it might be a good way to look at some of those things. The things that we hold so dear. I mean, we put so much stock into having the latest, greatest iPhone or technology and yet next to Jesus It's a pile of dung. It really is. Think about that. Do we look at our things like that? Do we look at the things that we put so much emphasis on or need for and go, man, would I be willing to trade those things in just for that knowledge of Christ, of knowing Jesus? Would I give those things up if I had to? Paul came to know that no amount of works will ever make him righteous before God. It was only, he says, through faith in Christ. That's what it was all about. Because of what he has received, Siri's going to correct me on that one now. Sorry, sorry. what's the right thing there? Okay. It's just dung, Tony. Put it away. Okay, all right. Paul, yeah. Paul was able to keep moving forward here with his spiritual mind. Right, and He realizes, I haven't arrived I'm not going to be held back any longer by the past You know, we can have a real tendency to, to beat ourselves up over um, past mistakes or past actions We allow these things to hold us back or impede us or keep us from moving forward And we can get stuck in a, in a rut of guilt or, or depression And there's no joy in that But again, with a singleness of mind, look at how Paul begins to look at these things now that he'd once been living for, to where he is now. Look at what he says in verse 12. Not that I've already attained, or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself yet to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal of for the prize of the upper call of God in Christ Jesus. Notice this spiritual mind of Paul with the right focus and the right perspective on these things. First of all, we look at his dissatisfaction in verse 12. And you know, with all that Paul had accomplished, he still wasn't ready to sit back on his laurels. He he wanted to keep moving forward. We need to be careful that we don't get comfortable with where we are. That's when when mediocrity and and misery begin to set in. I'm not talking about being content. Paul's going to talk about contentment later on. I'm not talking about being content. There's a the difference between being comfortable and being content. But Paul's operating with this dissatisfaction to say, I don't want to rest in those things. I don't want to stay where I'm at. I want to keep going on. And then we see this right direction of Paul in verse 13. Paul wasn't about to let the past hold him back. He was simply focused on one thing that was moving ahead in Jesus. And reason to be distracted or discouraged by the past, right? I mean, he was there at the stoning of Stephen. He was persecuting the early church. He had a lot of things that he could have been playing over in his mind thinking, what am I doing? I, I'm not worthy of this. How is God going to work to me? Is he going to eventually punish me for all these things that I've done? He had reasons to think about his past and be held back. Think about Peter. And denying Jesus. He thought, I'm done. I'm disqualified. God will never be able to work through me. But none of these things would hinder those guys from moving forward. And it wasn't that they forgot about all these things. What Paul is implying when he says he forgets those things is that he overlooks them. He's given them over to Christ and they're no longer fretting over them any longer. Or letting them hold them back. That's a healthy attitude to have. Now... Perhaps you looked at past mistakes or regrets and they kind of held on to you. But maybe you've looked at your past and your past successes with a little bit more admiration than you are in the present or what's to come. Maybe you're allowing the past things to hold you back because you're longing for those days once again. Look at what Ecclesiastes 7, verse 8 to 10 says, the end of a thing is better than its beginning. The patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Do not hasten your spirit to be angry, for anger rests in the bosom of fools. Notice this. Do not say, why were the former days better than these? For you do not inquire wisely. Sometimes we can look at our past and be like, oh, why can't I be like that again? Oh, will I ever get back to those glory days? We can think that way sometimes. But what's Paul saying here? He's saying, He's saying, One thing I do, one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind me and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. That's the right direction to take. Don't look to the past with more affection than you're looking to the future. The end is going to be better than the beginning in God's economy, but also don't don't live in the past and don't worry about the past. Focus on what lies ahead. Focus on the race today And that's the next thing Paul is sure about Is his determination Verse 14 Paul said he presses on to Win the prize I like that To win the prize I wonder how many Christians have that determination in mind Are we content to run with the pack To go with the crowd Are we happy to be in second Or maybe third Just so that we can say I'm better than some at least Ever feel that way or do we want to go all out so as to win the prize? Paul covered his bases on this thought because he says in 1 Corinthians nine twenty four, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. That was Paul's heart here. That's his attitude. That's that spiritual mind. I'm going to run in such a way that I will win the prize. I don't want to come up short. I don't want to settle for second place. Now, this wasn't something where Paul was going to get nasty and start competing, you know, bringing up the elbows on his fellow competitors, like getting them out of the way and trying to make sure he gets ahead of them. No, because there's a prize for everybody, you see. Well, what is the prize? Paul says, it's the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. It's when Jesus says, time's up, time to come up. And receive your inheritance. Yeah, hallelujah to that. That's the upper call of God in Christ Jesus. It's when we hear those words, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into my rest. Have you received that prize yet? Well, if you're hearing the sermon, then the answer is no. <laughs> I can venture to say you haven't yet, but but so we recognize we keep going with a desire and a determination to go all out for Jesus. That can't help but to increase your joy as you live this life with purpose, with the right dissatisfaction on what's been behind you, the right direction to keep moving forward, and that determination to run in a way that you may obtain the prize. That's living for the Lord. That's carrying on His purposes and His glory. That's what's going to increase joy in your life. That's having that spiritual mind. And then Paul reminds his readers that we're not living for this world anyway. look at verse 20 of chapter 3. For our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Here's the thing, everybody. Heaven is our true home. We're citizens of heaven. So don't get so bound down and discouraged by the things of this world. Like what Paul would say in Colossians 3 to set your mind on things above, not on things in the earth. Because that's our true home. Now, Philippi here, like I said earlier, was a Roman colony. The great characteristic of these colonies was that wherever they were, there remained fragments of Rome. Roman-style clothes were worn, Roman magistrates governed, Latin was spoken, Roman justice was administered, Roman morals were observed. Even in the most remote regions, they remained unshakably Roman. Paul says to the Philippians, just as the Roman colonists never forget that they belong to Rome, you must never forget that you are citizens of heaven and your conduct must match your citizenship. Is your conduct matching your true citizenship? We're citizens of heaven. Are we, are we living like it? Oh, I pray that we are. And with this right spiritual mind, it puts everything into perspective to where we realize, man, I'm not living for this world. I'm not to be bound up by the things of this world. I got a higher calling. I got a higher purpose. I have a, Heavenly destination. And I'm living for that eternal perspective. That was Paul's heart here. And what's interesting is, the Philippians would eagerly wait for a visit from their Roman emperor. But we're waiting for Christ. And he's going to come anytime. And when the emperor would come and visit... There would be great transformation that would take place to the city in preparation for his coming. Roads would be fixed. New things would be put up. I mean, they made it look spectacular for this visit from the Roman emperor. But when Christ comes, we're going to be the ones being transformed. What a great thought that is. Uh, We may have many bumps, potholes, areas that need repair when Christ comes we're going to be made new 1 Corinthians 15 51 to 53 behold I tell you a mystery we shall all see but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed that's the upward call of God in Christ Jesus for this corruptible must put on incorruption this mortal must put on immortality what a great transformation is going to take place when Christ returns now at the beginning of Chapter 4, Paul needed to address a situation between a couple of women in this church. They were having an issue with one another. We're not sure what the issue was, and frankly, when you are got a couple of feuding women, you just, you know, stay out of it. No, I'm kidding, but Paul Paul gets a fellow companion, and we're not sure who exactly, could have been Timothy, could have been Luke, it may have been Epaphroditus, but he has this companion come and just Begin to bring some counsel to them. It's always a good thing to have kind of another party in that's, you know, with just a a whole fresh view on the situation to come and bring some counsel. And so here's what happens. And the main thing is this Paul says in chapter 4, verse um, 3. And I urge you, also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also. And the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say rejoice. Here's the important thing. That your names are written in the book of life. That's the key. You know, we're all going to be spending eternity together in heaven. I think about the disputes that I see going on in the church. And the way that we can sometimes call out one another. One another. And maybe not just within the local church. I'm talking about uh, among Christendom at large. Seeing somebody on TV that you may not like, you know, calling them out and, and this and that. Oh, there's times where when there's a false gospel going out, they need to be called out. But so often it's, it's not that. And we just don't like the style or the personality. We just start calling them out. You ever think that, you know, we're going to be spending eternity, these people in heaven? I mean, what an awkward thing that's going to be, you know, if Jesus were to come and introduce you to sober, somebody that you've been just like slamming here on earth. Hey, have you met so-and-so? You, you know this guy. Remember the things you wrote? Should we bring up a list? And you're like, no, no, it's okay. I just thought that's covered. And no, uh, you know, it's going to be awkward for some. Why bother? Let's, let's receive one another in the love of Christ and the grace of the Lord. Rejoice. Just be rejoicing. So chapter 4 here really identifies this secret of joy in spite of worry now. is a secure mind. Look at verse 6. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. What a great promise this is for us. Worry and stress has become the great epidemic in our world. It's funny, in a time where it seems we try to make everything easier through automation or technology, it's just created more anxiety, right? But it's not necessary. You know, according to a study, a dense fog covering, a seven, city, covering seven city blocks to a depth of 100 feet, think about that, a dense fog covering seven city blocks to a depth of 100 feet contains less than one glass of water. All that fog, if it could be condensed into water, wouldn't quite fill up a drinking glass. Compare that to the things we often worry about. Because like fog, our worries can thoroughly block our vision of the light of God's promises. But the fact is that there's often very little substance to it. Another person done a research of people that worry and the things that they worry about. And, And... found that 91% of the things that people worry about do not come true. Do you realize the unnecessary grief we put ourselves through in worry? And it's become such a problem. But here's the thing. When we pray, as Paul is telling us to do, we, when we pray, we come back into view of the God who is our help And our refuge. And when we commune with Him through prayer, we suddenly begin to get that proper perspective again. That's why prayer is so important. I love what David wrote in Psalm 61, verse 1 to 4. And he says this, Hear my cry, O God. Attend to my prayer. From the end of the earth I will cry to you. When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been a shelter for me, a strong tower from the enemy, I will abode in your tabernacle forever. I will trust in the shelter of your wings. Selah, which means think on that. See, what does David say? Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. When my heart is overwhelmed, stress, anxiety, fear, worry. When my heart is overwhelmed, Lord, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. What happens when we get led to that rock higher than I? We get a fresh perspective. Man, when you get up, As we are right now, 30,000 feet in the air. Suddenly everything that once looked so huge, so big, is just nothing. It's simple. Sometimes when we are looking at our problems, our struggles, and we're focused on them, they just begin to get so magnified, so big, so overwhelming. But what we need to do is we need to turn to the Lord, as Paul says, in everything through prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, he says, let your requests be made known to God. Don't whine and bellyache. Bring these things to the Lord. Lay them at His feet. And rejoice, thank Him for what He's already done for you. But what happens when we pray is we begin to get a clear view of God and His greatness. And we begin to get Lifted up above our problems to get a, a proper perspective to realize, why do I have to dwell on that and worry about that when God is so much more infinitely bigger and greater and more powerful than that? Why do I need to stress and worry needlessly when I can just bring this to God and allow Him to, to do what I cannot do in myself? And that's what prayer does is we commune with God. It's not just Labbing our knees to the Lord, it's just spending time with Him and hearing from Him, being reminded of His promises. That's what, what prayer is to be as we, we share with Him, we take time to listen back in return. and return. Oftentimes, it's maybe bringing reminder of Scriptures into your heart, speaking to you through His Word, bringing you comfort and encouragement and hope again. How we need to do that. And as we do, look what Paul says happens we begin to have that secure mind that he talked about here. That secure mind, because it says there, as you do these things, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Isn't that great? The peace of God. Now we see through scripture that we have peace from God. We have peace with God. But now we see we have the peace of God. We have a piece of his peace. It's like he's giving us his peace. That goes beyond understanding where, where you might think, how can I be settled in this situation? How can I be comfortable going through this trial? Sometimes we can't even explain it. But that's the peace of God. Because it goes beyond understanding. When people look at you, and again, as we saw in Peter on Sunday, when we go through trials, there's a purpose sometimes that it just elevates the, the greatness of God. It reveals His strength. To where people can look at you and go, how are you going through this? It's just the Lord. Because He's given me a peace that goes beyond my understanding. It's beyond me. But as we pray, as we seek the Lord, as we give these things over to Him, as we present our request before God, that's what he, He's inviting us to do. So that he can just allow us to experience his peace. So keep looking to him. Bring all things to him in prayer. The Bible says, cast your cares upon him for he cares for you. So keep your mind on those things that are good and true. And he goes on to tell us that in verse 8. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble... Whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report if there's any virtue and if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Let your mind dwell on these things. Let your mind just kind of hash these things through. The things that you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do. And the God of peace will be with you. Amen. Let your mind be secure in what is true and right. Those things that are filled with worry and fear and anxiety are poisonous, and they oftentimes do not fit in this category of verse eight. Let your mind meditate on that which is good and true and pure. Noble and lovely and praiseworthy. Don't get caught up in all that other stuff that robs you of joy. This epistle is being written that you might know joy, you might walk in it. And it's not dependent on what you're going through. So don't let circumstances, don't let people, don't let things, don't let worry rob you of joy. Rather, had that singleness of mind, that submissive mind, that spiritual mind, and the secure mind. All right, let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful for the joy that you give us. Lord, as we, we, we saw in Peter, I'm just reminded of, it's joy, unspeakable, and full of glory. It's a joy that is lasting. It's a joy that we're to be walking in. And Lord, yet I know that there are people, whether here right now or in our church that aren't here, people perhaps listening online that have struggled in this area of joy. They've allowed these robbers to come in and take away steal away that joy. But Lord, there's nothing That's to stand in our way of having joy in you when we are those that are putting these things into practice. Living like how Paul showed us with that singleness of mind. That for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Being submissive. Not letting anything be done through selfish ambition, but considering others even better than ourselves having that spiritual mind that says we're going to keep moving forward in what you have for us, God, and having that secure mind where we're just resting in your peace as we bring all problems, worries, stresses to you, God. I pray that we might see those things release as we come to you in prayer. So I pray that you'd strengthen us, Lord. Anybody here tonight, anybody in our church, anybody listening online, that they would know that peace of God here today. And that they would begin to walk in that joy, not allowing anything to rob them any longer of these things, but rather having the right mind as we've seen here in Philippians. Thank you for this letter that has stood the test of time, that is as relevant for us today as it was then. So may we put this into practice now. Help us in that by your spirit, we pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.